The Holy Gospel according to St. John, chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the money given to the poor and, in, and said to, and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She brought it so she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you but you do not always have me. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Six days before the Passover, says John, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, and also his sister Martha and their sister Mary. But we have some very important context. In his gospel, the last time mentioned, Jesus, John mentioned Lazarus as his sister, was, and his sister was only just a couple of verses ago, actually. And the reason at that time he, he wasn't at dinner, the reason being he was dead dead and buried for four days by the time Jesus finally got there. And so when Jesus then said that he wanted the stone rolled away from the tomb to see his friend Lazarus, Martha, um, kind of always pretty much the event coordinator in the scenes when she shows up, wanting things to go according to plan, according to script, everybody do their part. Martha had told Jesus that it having been four days since they laid him to rest, her brother's body by now would be stinking to high heaven. And of course, those of us who are experts, because um, either we Googled, or we watch um, CSI reruns, or we maybe stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night, are aware <laughs> that she surely was right about that. After four days with no refrigeration and no arterial embalming, the body would have stunk, and what it would have stunk of is death. So she was exactly right when she said what she said. She was about to learn, however, that there is exactly right. And then there's Jesus, who ignored the wisdom and rightness of her counsel by having the stone rolled away from the tomb, at which point when he did what he'd come to do, it wasn't the stench of death that wafted out of the tomb, but rather the raised from the dead Lazarus who walked out of the tomb. And that's the immediate front side context of our text for today. The backside context is that in John's Gospel, we are right now just actually eight days away or so from a stone that will be rolled away from another tomb that will not smell of death, but in this case, smell of Easter. Lazarus, of course, who was seen walking out of his own tomb, was raised from the dead nevertheless one day to die again. His resurrection, in other words, is a miracle of death reversed, but only in the end deferred. On Easter, 
On the other hand, it will be angels that will be seen in a tomb, reminding those of the promise of death not deferred, but defeated. But here now in today's text, in those days between the sealing and unsealing of both of those tombs, we return with Jesus to Bethany for a dinner party in his honor. And Lazarus, John is quick to point out, isn't dead, he's at dinner. John doesn't specifically say, but presumably, I would think, on the surface, this was a thank you dinner for Jesus for raising Lazarus. But with Jesus, and even more so when John's gospel is the one telling Jesus' story, what's almost always also going on is so much more than what's just on the surface, surprising things going on just, just beneath the surface. Hold that thought. But first, back to the details on the service, a dinner party where, writes John, the least surprising thing in this story, where Martha served. The surprise, though, here is not that Martha served, but that she did it without griping. Because, of course, this scene is almost like a deja vu, all over again version of a story in Luke's gospel, when at another time they were all gathered in the very same house, and once again Martha was in the kitchen and cooking and serving, while her sister Mary wasn't in the, in the kitchen, in that case because Mary had made her way into the room with the men to listen to Jesus' teachings. And Martha, pass, passive-aggressive and peeved, huffed in the room that time to say not to Mary, said sideways at Mary. She looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, do you think maybe you could tell the little princess that somebody could use a little help in the darn kitchen? Jesus also didn't heed Martha's counsel that time. <clears throat> Not by telling her that serving the physical needs of others is wrong. It surely wasn't. Jesus fed the hungry <clears throat> and calls his followers to do the same. But he also told his followers and his church and Martha in Luke 11, that truly to live, we need to feed not just on the food of the world, but also on the food of the Word, the food of heaven. For what it fills us with cannot, will not ever be taken from us in spite of what the world does and in spite of the garbage the world keeps trying to feed us. Because here's a truth and a promise. What the world didn't give you, the world can't take from you. And how true is that? Well, stay tuned. For it isn't long now before we're going to hear the claim that God being the one who gives life, the world can't even take that from you, even if it nails you to a cross or buries you in a grave. What the world didn't give you, the world can't take from you. Back to today's gospel, where again Martha is serving by herself, but this time not complaining. Why? Because one of those whom she is now serving had by death been taken from her and by Jesus been given back to her to even now be seated at the table, not smelling of death to her, but smiling at her as he commented how great was the smell of the meatloaf and twice-baked potatoes, and overnight refrigerator rolls that had all just come out of the oven. And beside him, too, smiling, too, was Jesus. Why did Martha on this occasion not even mention a thought of complaining? Because she was so, 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 so grateful.
For it turns out gratitude for who and what you do have has a whole lot of healing and vaccinating power when it comes to healing and protecting us from our proclivity to complain what all we don't have. Continuing with the story where once again, as was the case in Luke, Mary wasn't in the kitchen, but rather again, breaking cultural and gender barriers with each step she took into the room where were the men and Jesus? Not this time to do the surprising and barrier-breaking thing of listening to Jesus, the rabbi, with the men, but rather to do the extravagantly shocking thing she then did do to the rabbi in front of the men. That extravagantly shocking thing she did then being, says John, taking a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard and pouring it on Jesus' feet and then wiping it with her hair. An oh so extravagant act, first of all, financially. For as Judas was quick to point out, that amount of pure nard would have cost 300 denarii. To help you do the math, let me point out that one denarius was the amount an average laborer would make in a day. Which is to say that working six days a week, it would have taken an average laborer a year to pay for the perfume that Mary did just then wash upon Jesus' feet. But there was another extravagance here too, that being the extravagance of the vulnerability of Mary herself extravagance of vulnerability she was surely awash with here. As with this act, she was doing something that would absolutely have been interpreted not just as indecently inappropriate financially, but also indecently inappropriate physically and even meant uh, intimately. In the culture of that day, as it's the case in some of the cultures of the world still today, women in public and also, of course, in worship, kept their heads covered. They exposed their hair to no one, especially no men, other than their husbands. Which is to say, though John doesn't mention anybody saying it out loud, that everyone in that room, this side of Jesus, would absolutely have at least been thinking to themselves at that moment, whoa, not appropriate. Indeed, as Pastor Priest said in our Tuesday men's Bible study this past week, even in these days with our comparatively so very relaxed standards of what is appropriate or inappropriate, in his words, if I was eating dinner and a woman came in and poured perfume on my feet and then started rubbing it in with her hair, Mrs. Priest would have a problem with this. Judas, on the other hand, does out loud say that he personally has a problem not with the intimately indecent extravagance of it all, but rather with the financially indecent extravagance of it all, because that amount of money, he said, surely could have been used to help a whole lot of the poor instead. I mean, Jesus, he said, can you imagine what Shelter House or the free lunch program could do for the poor with a year's worth of wages? Which is a good point. Except that John does add that it wasn't actually the poor that Judas was concerned about, but, but himself personally, because he was the keeper of the treasury and he didn't mind seeing it as his own personal expense account as well, which of course would make him the patron sinner 
of the countless still today, including clearly the countless politicians you see today who love giving lip service to Bibles and Bible verses, although their actual agendas are not at all Bible-centered, but totally self-centered. John's the only gospel writer who makes that claim that Judas had a habit of having sticky fingers when he counted the offering, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all do concur that the one thing that finally moved Judas from disciple to betrayer was money. And in that sense, of course, Judas is the patron saint of all whose souls are sealed tombs. The stench of the allure and promise of money having stampeded to death the allure and promises of God. That said, though he did say it for the wrong reasons in his heart, what he said, taken at face value, nevertheless still does make some sense, does it not? I mean, just for example, take the story of the rich man who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus did not say, spend a year's worth of wages and buy expensive perfume and pour it on my feet. He said, sell what you have and give to the poor. But that's not what Jesus says here. Instead, what he says here is leave her alone. She brought this that she might keep it for the day of my, my burial. Do you see what's going on here beneath the surface? Remember how Mary had, anytime she could, feasted on, dined on Jesus' words and teachings and promises? What's going on here, I think, what we see here, I think, is that Mary is the only person in this room, this side of Jesus, who had believed him when he had told all of them more than once that what he was going to do when he got to Jerusalem was die at the hands of Jerusalem and of Rome because of God's oh-so love for the world, including Jerusalem and Rome. And whereas Peter had told Jesus he was dead wrong the first time he said that, and whereas the rest of them went back and forth between being completely confused and being quick to change the subject, the other times he said that, Mary and possibly of, of those in that room, only Mary had believed him when he said that. And believing him, she here does cross all manner of cultural and gender barriers extravagantly to anoint his feet with a year's worth of wages to then also extravagantly risk her reputation as those in that room can't but think of and judge her for the indecency, the impropriety of publicly exposing her hair and then to use her hair publicly to massage the anointed, the perfume into his feet. But to all who judged for any reason in thought or word, Jesus says, leave her alone. Because why? Because remember with me, for starters, the Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. The Greek word for anointed one is Christ. Mary here, anointing Jesus, is reminding all in that room and all in this room who he is. The Messiah, the Christ, the King, the One. But unlike earthly kings who were anointed with oil poured on their heads, Mary anoints this king's feet, which means she's kneeling in this scene, kneeling being a posture of both humility and worship. 
her posture thus reminding all in that room and in this room that this king is the king that all are meant to and one day will kneel before. And too, unlike earthly kings, she anoints him extravagantly and even indecently, not with oil, but with that very, very expensive perfume, a specific perfume which in those days was used to prepare a body for burial, covering at least some of the stench of death with the scent of the perfume. And in doing so, she reminds all that this king did extravagantly come to give not just a comparatively paltry year's worth of wages, but his very life, brutally and indecently to die. For suffering and dying was the calling he had been anointed into. Did Mary also know, did she believe that dying he would live again? don't know. It doesn't say. I think, though, that it's fair to say that she did know. She had come to believe that in life and death, in ways that she understood and in a lot of ways that she didn't, this king was God's love for her and for the world. The scent of that perfume filling the room, in other words, reminds us that his scent is the scent of heaven, whose love will spare no expense to love God's world home again. Home here and now from the stinking indecency of our sin, and home hereafter, even beyond the stinking stench of our graves. In the meantime, here and now in this life, let the scent of Mary's perfume filling the room remind us, those of us anointed with the waters and the perfume of our baptisms, that each of us as followers of Christ and all of us together as the Church of Christ have a common calling, and that is to be the, the scent, to be the aroma of God's love for God's world. In regard to that, when you come up today for communion, those of you who do, um, Pam and I will be the first people you come across. We will not be serving the bread. We will have some of the healing, embalming oil we use when we are baptized. It is fragrant. If you would like, you can stop in front of us and we will offer a blessing and make the sign of the cross on your forehead as it was when you were baptized. And may that aroma indeed remind you of your call. We're called to be the aroma, the scent of God's life, love, not filling a room, but filling the world. Amen.